Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to Crime Science, the podcast. This is our latest in our weekly update series. Um, I'm joined by my colleagues, Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan, um, our producer, um, Diego Rodriguez. And um, we're going to talk just a little bit about what's going on in the world uh, and how it's affecting uh, retailing. Um, There's a lot of great things happening, a lot of puzzling things happening, Um, but it's always going to be interesting and quite a roller coaster in the world of retailing, um, to be specific. Um, Of course, I'll start a little bit while we're in this um, horrific global pandemic, uh, talk a little bit about ongoing research and studies. Last week, we talked about, you know, science and what science is, a logic model, uh, some hypothesis or hypotheses that where somebody's proposing their propositions and then uh, uh, based on what they've seen and then maybe collecting more independent data or evidence to see how does, how does the, the new data uh, support their hypothesis about things and how might they alter then now the hypothesis, the model that we're looking at, the framework. Then that's how we all operate, including in healthcare. And that's why, again, uh, it's been quite the vertical and horizontal roller coaster for all of us as new uh, scientific research results are, uh, are put out there. And again, you know, I want to touch on, uh, uh, on this part two of science, what is peer reviewed, uh, versus non-peer reviewed or pre-review and, it, you know, essentially, uh, in academic journals, historically, there have been two or three, or sometimes even four, um, peer reviewers. In other words, other scientists uh, are sent by the journal editor if the initial article or paper meets their standards and passes their muster uh, out for review. And so they will select two to four, uh, mostly two or three reviewers to uh, take a run at the piece and and look at the body, the logic, uh, the thesis, the argument that's being made and how well is it spelled out? How well does it reference prior research and prior hypotheses or or logic, um, how, what was the research methodology? Did it appear to be sound, robust? Does it account for um, alternative interpretations of what the author or authors of the research end up saying in their piece? Um, And so, you know, we can talk later, I'm sure about uh, the robustness or rigor of research, but again, it's it's typically all about sampling and how uh, robust the sample is. Uh, We don't normally test the population just like in a blood test. Um, You're not going to have all of our, our blood's not taken out of our body, but a a representative sample of the blood is taken. So we talk about that population of interest. What are we interested in? What are we studying? Well, we'll take a sample, but is the sample we take, uh, is it a good sampling protocol? Is it randomized? Is it large enough? Um, in other words, does it match, likely, probabilistically match the population? Does it represent the population? If we're studying uh, all dogs, but we only sample from chihuahuas, 
we may not have a representative sample of dogs, you know, um, we may not even have a representative sample of chihuahuas, depending on how we do it. So those are things that are paid attention to and what we see in biology in particular um, with what's going on with COVID-19. And so the scientists are trying to uh, do good uh, research. Um, they're trying to robustly sample properly. So they'll have, you know, these strata stratified levels of elderly or different age segments, stratified levels of um of how we present uh, our genetics. In other words, phenotype, you know, what of our skin color, you know, our presumed race, because we're all fairly mixed um, uh, at this point in history. Um, and so we're trying to represent, or they're trying to represent the population of interest. Who's, who's likely to be infected? Who's likely to, to um, be protected in the case of a vaccine or recovered in the case of a therapy, for example. So, um, well, that's why we keep going. So when we look at prevention and distance, well, distance we talked about, there's a logic model that a the viral particles are transmitted in water droplets and aerosol. Um, so that means what's the distance that it can travel? And if it, is there enough uh, of a particle representation, enough, uh, a large enough inoculum to make somebody sick if they do inhale that uh, on average? So the farther we are away, maybe the more likely we are. So then they do research to understand, does that in fact seem to happen? Same thing again, we've talked about with masking, you know, different types of materials and layer number of layers and the coverage. So things don't, the particles don't leak out uh, through our nose. If we've got our nose hanging out or out the sides of the mask and under the mask and all these sorts of things, right? What type of material might generate more moisture and that humidity can help retard the spread of the virus and on and on. So just giving us there why we should still stay sane as we hear all the everything going all over the place on the vaccine front um i mean a huge progress now the world uh, really about 400 million of us humans have been vaccinated received at least one dose if it's a two dose um protocol uh, or one dose in the case of the j and j uh and there may be another out there that i'm not aware of that's single dose at this point. So um, about in the United States, I mean, really two, about 25, 27 million Americans have now had at least one vaccine dose. So it's massive. And the United States has done pretty well. Um, just uh, in the last 90 days from one, just over 1% of the U.S. population being vaccinated to now over a third, over 30 plus percent, 33% roughly of the overall population. And the good news is that uh, when you look at it, that's all humans, not all Americans in this case that are most exposed or most vulnerable. In the case of those that are most exposed to the virus and possible infection, or those that are the most vulnerable to getting serious disease from the virus, um, much larger, as much as two-thirds to 80% in some cases have been vaccinated. So that's massive progress since December when the first vaccine was uh, uh, the Pfizer, and then very shortly thereafter, the Moderna were put out. So the United States, despite having 300 plus million humans uh, just dispersed across a massive landmass, or huge landmass, um, you know, there's been some fantastic progress. So um, as far as the um, uh, looking at the Novavax, another vaccine in addition to Moderna and Pfizer and J&J, looks better and better, over 90% efficacy against most of the variants, um, at least 80 to 86% uh, 
it looks like, according to the literature, uh, efficacious uh, against um, some of the more virulent or at least the more transmissible strains or uh, that are out there. So good news that uh, yet a fourth may be on the way in the United States. Not so good news for the AstraZeneca Oxford University. Really the first one coming out the gate. Um, it's sort of a microcosm of what we all learned that the first data, the first this or the first that may not be the best. Uh, or, and again, this, this vaccine may turn out to be fantastic, but it's just uh, a lot of running into a lot of headwinds. And, you know, just recently, um, you know, the EU and um, others have started to put a hold on that vaccine. Um, again, millions have been vaccinated with it with relatively few, if any, side effects, and it appears to be efficacious, but um, there's some clotting concerns, evidently, and things like that. So um, in the abundance of caution, uh, some headwinds there. Uh, the Pfizer and Moderna continue to put out that they are looking at third boosters, you know, and just in case, or maybe for further efficaciousness, just as a research, that's their obligation, their due diligence. Um, uh, also, uh, how they can rapidly work on different strains, uh, even though there are new data out about Pfizer and possibly Moderna working fairly well, in fact, pretty well against some of these strains that are out there. Um, also that uh, some interesting mechanism of action, we're talking about, well, how does a vaccine actually affect the body and how does the body respond um, and so on, um, but uh, that there's more research showing that the lymph nodes uh, are actually activated in some way that, I, again, this is not my area of research, but um, with some of the memory B cells. So they're better, there's better and better understanding by scientists and physicians around how these vaccines actually activate the innate and the uh, uh, adaptive immune systems that we have, which are very, very, very complex. Um, but again, those are, there's some exciting news on some of that, as well as the transmissibility seems to be affected. Israeli um, research or research by those studying Israel uh, rolled out, and they've got well over three quarters of their population now it looks like vaccinated, um, but learning that transmission, viral transmission seems to go down in the vaccinated areas and the vaccinated people um, and so forth. So there may be good news there, may not sterilize us if we've got the virus, if we have the virus in us, but may uh, severely limit us spreading to somebody else, uh, even if we're vaccinated and not likely to get seriously sick. Um, just a, a quick little bit about um, some of the terms that are flying around out there too that we thought we could very quickly touch on. And that is, you know, endpoints. We hear people talk about endpoints. Um, and, and that's what we do again in criminology is trying to understand, well, if we implement this, this uh, countermeasure, this intervention, this treatment and uh, loss permits or asset protection, how, what are the endpoints? How do we know if this thing works? You know, and additionally, we're looking at how well do we execute it? And the same thing uh, that they do in biology, uh, particularly in medical research. But, um, you know, some of the endpoints you've been hearing is, well, deaths. I mean, what, how do these vaccines or how can a vaccine maybe reduce the likelihood that a vaccinated person would die from uh, COVID-19, the disease that's caused by SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and so it looks like the three that are authorized in the United States and then the potentially this Novavax, um, the fourth, uh, are highly, highly efficacious. It doesn't look like anybody died after receiving the vaccine in the phase one, two, or three trials compared to where there were some in, that were placebo arms 
but certainly hospitalizations, very serious uh, disease is reduced to almost zero as well, if not zero in, in the testing um, by all of these three vaccines. Symptomatic infection, where you're infected and there are one or two or more uh, you know, symptoms like fever um, and you know, dry cough uh, and so on, those types of disease and uh, symptoms. And then finally, the asymptomatic infections, which we all know or know about. In fact, I have a good friend who just found out through antibody testing while he was donating blood that he had the COVID-19 disease and he never experienced a single symptom. And this is, he's probably, he's just over 60, I believe, um, and so on. So, you know, you just don't know how you're going to respond to disease. But um, so those are the endpoints. So does a vaccine, are people that are vaccinated less likely to have being, to have uh, asymptomatic infection, symptomatic infection, to be hospitalized or on death, almost on that scale. And most were looking at the endpoints where the research was on symptomatic infection and hospitalizations and of course deaths, but not really looking at asymptomatic infections. It's very, very exhaustive research would have to be carried out with uh, ongoing routine and maybe multiple types of infection testing to determine the virus is present or not. And if you are in fact infected by the virus. So anyway, a little bit about endpoints. I don't know if that makes it clear or not, but the idea is to see if something works versus not doing something or a placebo arm in that case. Um, that's what's very, very important. So we can talk about more, more of the technicalities if anybody would like later, um, but it's very, very relevant to what we do in criminology. Um, so with seven uh, around the world vaccines approved, um, with uh, closing in on half a billion humans being vaccinated, we also see that uh, the likelihood of getting sick or infected or, uh, you know, God forbid, dying from a vaccine seems to be almost non-existent. Um, we're looking at, well, all of us have seen, well, a, a young lady, relatively young woman who seemed healthy uh, did pass away uh, shortly after her second, but is that coincidental? Her second dose, is that coincidental or causal? You know, or is there some interaction in, in between there? Um, the initial uh, results coming from the pathology, at least in public statements, seem to be, we don't think this is actually related. In fact, her father in his grieving state went and got his first vaccine dose uh, after his daughter's death. So we don't know, you know, these things are tragic, but one thing that uh, some of the epidemiologists have been studying is if the vaccine after the second dose or even after the first was is created the same problems that the, that the actual virus is creating for us, then we would have already experienced uh, over 40,000 deaths at this point uh, from vaccinations, um, of which they're having a difficult time accounting for even one. So for whatever it's worth, it's not for me to put out whether something is safe or not safe. Um, or, or even recommend something, but rather this is what's out there in the literature. Um, everybody has to make their own decision. In fact, you know, I know I'm getting vaccinated um, here <clears throat> pretty shortly. So um, let's keep moving on here. Uh, I think what we want to talk about is move over to LPRC. And um, the I, we're, we are now in deep planning for another cluster call. Those LPRC members that might be tuning in are aware of the cluster calls where we have a curated uh, agenda that um, is is uh, what we all want to mostly talk about uh, going forward. And the reason I talk a lot about these vaccines are 
and talk about masking other preventive measures and what the logic and all behind and the evidence that support those is that going forward, we're hearing uh, Dr. Fauci and others talk about we need to still mask up, even if uh, you're two, three, four weeks out from your second dose, let's say if you've had the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, um, just an abundance of caution. You still could be viremic. We could be spreading, still transmitting the virus. Um, research is showing that's probably not very likely, but there could be contrary research or the research is as well done as we, as we talked about a few minutes ago. Um, but regardless, let's talk about what this means, the implications for the retailer that right now we've all seen, uh, and some of you listening know or have personally experienced, know of someone that has or personally experienced somebody who breaks bad, somebody who uh, very verbally or even physically resists the suggestion that they wear a mask to protect others and themselves um, if they're going to shop in the establishment uh, in the same way we do with um, others, like, you know, no shoes, no service. So um, what about now if we now have a vastly vaccinated public or an individual who's been fully vaccinated? Now, according to the data, they should be uh, robustly immune and probably not likely transmitting. What does that mean for the retailer who's now still being asked by local ordinance, by the state or federal level to, if not enforce, reinforce mask wearing in that establishment? Um, or you've got other customers in there that have not been vaccinated or still feel vulnerable or could, in fact, be vulnerable uh, regardless of the vaccination status. So uh, could it make it more and more, more difficult to enforce what's already been very difficult to reinforce? Um, so that's going to be a, a topic uh, as well as what we're seeing in the news with the, you know, we saw uh, anniversary of the Breonna Taylor, I believe, Tommy and my colleague will talk about it in a minute um, here about some of the, where she was killed in the crossfire. Um, and uh, there was a one year anniversary that uh, in some, there were demonstrations, some which uh, apparently turned violent um, and where retail establishments were affected as, as per normal, I guess. Uh, also, we know the jury selection and other issues are coming out about around the George Floyd trial, upcoming trial, uh, where there was a settlement evidently with the city and, and some of the family of uh, Mr. Floyd, um, but what is what is that trial? How is that trial going to go? How is it? Go how is the trial going to affect, um, regardless of outcome or with the daily, weekly twists and turns of any trial um, that are, that make it out in the public? Details uh, affect um, people's responses, and, and in our case, the implications for the retailers. So we'll be talking about that on the cluster calls. Um, Tony, I'm going to ask you if you're comfortable to mention the LPRC Europe initiative, a little bit about that and what's going on around that, if you're open to do that. Um, so I think with no further ado, let me go over to Tom Meehan. Uh, Tom, uh, a lightness, if you will, on uh, all the, the array of threats and what people are doing about it. Well, uh, I'll start with uh, just to, to kind of piggyback off what you said, the, some of the rallies slash protests surrounding the anniversary of Brianna Taylor um, and, uh, you know, while, while there were certainly um, some more um, uh, protest or riot uh, type in certain hotbeds, predominantly these were what I would say were rallies or gatherings with numbers that were uh, reasonable. I um, hate to use the word hotbed, but for this, it seems to be kind of a common topic is in certain markets, Portland, Denver, um, Seattle, LA, uh, Northern California, 
they were there were more civil disturbance than others and uh, arrests were made specifically in Portland and Seattle, actually in Portland. Uh, there were several arrests made where guns were recovered um, during uh, uh, rioting or looting, although I would say it was much smaller scale than what we've seen in the past. It, it was definitely uh, still an event. And in some of the reporting that I saw and some of the video I saw, you were talking about groups that were dozens or hundreds, uh, unlike in the past, were thousands. That's not to say that there weren't larger groups, uh, because there were, but I think um, the larger groups were relatively peaceful and really rallying around and, and trying to send the message of unity. Um, I think it, it's important to state for all of us that, you know, that when we talk about the LPRC and the Fusion Net, which is kind of our communication portal for these type of events that the, the, that the more information that uh, the listeners can share, the better we all are because the whole idea of fusion that is, is kind of a social platform. Um, it isn't a place where we're, you know, as the LPRC necessarily scraping a whole bunch of news sources and putting it in. We're really looking for human input and validation between, and then to share some concerns. Um, social media uh, was a buzzing, um, you know, from really uh, a late evening into early hours uh, of the morning uh, with a lot of photos there. I think the the police departments also use social media in a much wider fashion than I've seen in the past with these. Uh, for instance, Seattle Police Department, um, you know, made made a point to uh, there was a Starbucks broken into. There was a, a, a whole posters that actually take pictures of them and talk about it and. Um, use terms like group versus large group and really um, everybody from the law enforcement side and from the community side was using social media this time in a different fashion. I did see um, some live video from LA. I don't know where it was in LA to be quite honest with you and um, where there was tear gas deployed. One of the things that I was finding interesting on the threads um, that while I have seen this in the past kind of hasn't been out in as much as gatherings to meet to share um, mask supplies. So for instance, in the Portland market and the Seattle market, and actually also in the Philly, Philadelphia market, there were meetups to get respirators. So um, one of the challenges today with civil unrest is masks are, you know, predominantly are, are required, right? Uh, because of COVID in the past, masks would, in most jurisdictions during a protest or would, uh, immediately, a lead to an arrest. Today, what I saw that was interesting is these groups were getting respirators that were resistant to tear gas and the pepper spray. And basically were saying, come meet here, um, look for this van, this truck. Um, and they were handing out respirators um, to help combat some of the tactics that law enforcement uses. So in an already very difficult environment that creates a much greater uh, degree of difficulty. And in one market, and uh, it was somewhere in the Northwest. I don't actually, looking at my notes here, um, I think it was Portland as well. They were also handing out helmets and riot gear. Um, that's a, you know, those are organized. I, I call them agitators. Those are generally the people that go in the smaller group. The one thing that I thought was relatively absent here is the mention of, you know, far right or far left groups. This was really, there wasn't a lot, as much information with the exception of a couple markets where there was chatter on specific groups meeting. Uh, I would again say in, in the Northwest, there was some of that, but predominantly wasn't. So 
Um, I think we have to all be prepared and, and continue to be uh, what, mindful of what some of the things that are occurring in Minnesota and Reed talked about it, um, you know, with the, the George Floyd case and what some of the things that are occurring there. Um, there this civil reward um, has posed a challenge to potentially have to uh, seek a new jury. It also opens the door for potential mistrial when the trial starts. So I think we really, really need to pay close attention to that. Um, as information becomes more available, um, it can and probably will incite um, some folks and upset them. Uh, the, some of the medical examiner reports are coming out, some autopsies are coming out, and there is a ton of chatter on some of um, the, what I would say, the offshoot social media groups, Telegram, there are just tons of groups. One of the interesting things in the Minnesota, um, Minneapolis market proper is that there is also a ton of and vigilante is not the right um, word, but it reminds me of the Garden Angels of, the, of back in New York City in the 80s and 90s of groups saying, you know, on the same side of counter protests saying, you know, let's meet up and make sure that damage is not done to this area. Let people protest, but not damage, you know, the stores we need to, you know, we need to recover. So very, very interesting kind of thing that's specific to that market where there are several groups of community members that have really taken kind of the approach of um, counter protest or counter riot. So more, definitely more to come. We'll continue to update folks as information becomes available um, on the podcast here and also through the Fusion Net. And I would encourage everybody um, who's listening, who is a member who's not uh, participating in the Fusion Network uh, to participate, whether that be just to see the information, but also to share information and by all means reach out to any of the, the folks of the LPRC or myself, uh, and I'll be happy to direct you on how to get onto that. Switching gears a little bit, and I'm gonna go fairly quickly because a lot of this feels like this is uh, repetitive because of COVID, we continuously see some of the same things, but there were um, you know some really uh, interesting reports coming out. And I think we touched on a couple of them uh, last, you know, the, in the last few podcasts. So I won't, I won't go too far in depth, but um, PwC did a, a pretty thorough survey on cybersecurity and how it relates to um, COVID, as well as there were two other pretty recognized surveys that went out. And in one of the, the surveys, there was kind of a, this, this first, if you can, for this type of survey, where 96% um, of the, the participants in the survey, that's 9-6, said that the, they are now taking cybersecurity into almost every business decision they make based on some of the, the learnings from COVID-19. So when you talk about security, whether it be physical security, cybersecurity, um, you know, espionage security, IP security, any of the security uh, pieces out there, education and awareness is, is what really drives the programs forward. And the LPRC is a perfect example of that. And this is a great example of where COVID-19 has really opened people's eyes to the cybersecurity risks. And it was somewhat alarming uh, in one of these surveys when it talked about pharmaceutical companies, where more than half of the pharmaceutical companies in this report reported a breach in the last uh, three years. And in the re respondents that had a breach, 93% of them said they had a repeat breach. And that was one of the, the that was a one survey. Another survey said 78% of the pharmaceutical companies had a breach. 
And so, and again, directly related to COVID, but to think that, you know, that level of activity exists. Um, and yeah, it's definitely heightened because of COVID, but it's really there. And then, you know, I'll, I'll kind of wrap up with uh, this. There was a really great, interesting report around cybersecurity and how you can protect the uh, cybersecurity supply chain. And I think that directly relates um, to what, you know, what we're talking about here, because a lot of retailers are there in there too, um, is, is this, there's a couple different tips. And I think we've talked about some of these tips before and they are cybersecurity related. Um, one is just prioritize your privileged access across you know, the supply chain, making sure the right people have access to the right things, but limiting the people that don't need access. Access and opportunity obviously uh, opens it up. So if you take access, opportunity and human error, in a cybersecurity world, it is the recipe for disaster. You know, you will you will certainly have a challenge. Um, supplier security readiness and supply chain and uh, supply chains um, really taking through and and going and making sure that the standards are in in place and that there's a model across all of your comp, uh, your enterprise. Uh, a zero trust based approach. We talked about that very very early on in in COVID. And taking that approach that no one should be trusted and working your way backwards. So you start with locking all the doors, all the windows and keeping everybody out and then identifying who can get in um, is kind of that piece. And then ex extending that zero trust framework across the entire supply chain by, you know, implementing uh, endpoint security and then transitioning to that physical security world. Physical security and cybersecurity overlap dramatically. We don't talk about it much, but we need to talk about it more, how that the two go hand in hand. And um, also some of the education awareness stays the same. Something I talk about all the time, everybody who's listening, if you don't have multi-factor uh, authentication turned on everything, turn it on. It's free. Your bank, your social media, your Gmail, your email, that, and that multi-factor works really in a couple of different ways. It'll either send you a text message or an app-based authentication. But basically when you put your password in, you got to do something else. It is the simplest, easiest, cheapest way to eliminate the low-hanging fruit. It is not foolproof, but it will, in some cases, will eliminate that, that first uh, run attack. And it is the reason I'm harping on it is because it is the one of the easiest things to do. So everybody is listening personally and professionally. Turn it on. Go in, uh, you know, on anything that you use, and it is widely available. There really are no financial institutions that that don't offer it. No social media organizations that don't offer it. Um, most uh, financial institutions actually require it, uh, but really, really run through. Um, pay. You know, one of the other things is look at your your budgeting, and this is something I think you'll hear. Uh, for retail security as well, um, loss prevention is really take a deep look at that and make sure that we're, you're understanding what the risk is and making the appropriate investment in technology and people. Um, and then, you know, really the, the diversification between human and, and technology, you know, where, what, what role does AI play versus what role does um, humans play in the mix? It's not one or the other. It has to be both. Um, in the supply chain world, if there's a retailer that is helping move vaccines, which I know some people are, or, or storing them, you know, uh, making sure that you have correct endpoint management and physical security in the way. And this is, this is the one that I, is so interesting to me because it plays perfectly into what we talk about. Tony and I talk about it all the time and Reed and I do as well. Track and traceability is essential in any in, in vaccine supply chain and any supply chain. You know, the, the availability to track and trace what you're using. RFID is, is growing exponentially. Um, 
part of it has to do with COVID. And this is another kind of example of where a technology that retail has been using for several years has been really flushed out to show the value. It'll help us all um, deploy that in our environments in the future. So uh, without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Tony. Thank you very much, uh, Tom and uh, Reed. Uh, great information as usual. I'm gonna switch to some industry data and I will conclude an update on LPRC Europe. So let me start with the Wall Street Journal from this weekend, an article from March 13, 14. The article was titled, Attention Shoppers Will Never Buy the Same Again. And it was a good analysis on the state and the trends that emerged out of COVID-19. They see six trends. Number one, holiday shopping will not be the same. Black Friday is not dead, but it's changing. Promotions will start a lot earlier and will last longer. And that was the case in 2020. We started the holiday season this year in early October with Amazon Prime Day. Number two, malls will be back, but will be different. 25% of U.S. malls are projected to close. Uh, according to Corsair Research, roughly 40% of more squill footage by comparison, for example, in China, are devoted to food and beverage compared to just 11% in, in the U.S. So expect the configuration to be different. There will be a pent-up demand for experiences like theme parks inside malls. Number three, retailers will lie less on discounts. Uh, what that means is you're going to see a lot more personalized promotion coming up in uh, as we go forward post-pandemic. Number four, a store is no longer just a store. Stores have morphed into fulfillment centers like Amazon. Target said it costs on average 40% less to ship from store compared to ship from the warehouse. Major chains closed 8,700 stores in 2020 after shuttering 9,819. Number five, curbside won't get kicked to the, to the curb. For consumers, it's about convenience. The retailers have figured out that curbside it saves them money. Target estimates, again, that it costs 90% on average less when shoppers pick up those orders at the, at the curbside. In other words, at last miles. And number six, shoppers will become a virtual reality. Uh, what's happening is e-commerce, the blur between e-commerce and physical is blurring, and that will continue. E-commerce will account in 2020 for about 21.2% of total retail sales, which is up uh, from 18% the previous year. But it also tells you that physical retail is not going out of business. 99%, uh, 80% 80 is still being done in physical stores. So physical stores will still be there. Some very interesting data coming out of this uh, report from the Wall Street Journal. In February 2020, pre-pandemic, mall food traffic was actually up 10%. Then the pandemic hit, and in a by April, the lowest we got to was, it was down April 2020, it was down to nearly 96%. As of February 2021, so just last month, it is still down, mall traffic is down 38%. For US and brick and mortar stores in Q4 2020, sport and leisure sales were up 16% in Q4 
Overall, 2020, they've been up 5%. Furnitures and home were up 4% in Q4, up six, down 6% for the year. General merchandise up 3% in Q4 and up 2% for the entire year. Apparel, the one that got hit really hard in Q4, it was down on another 14%. And for the year, apparel was down 26%. For North America, we did buy more clothes online. So e-commerce sales, pre-pandemics were expected to be up 28%. They were actually up 39% for sporting and leisures. Uh, pre-pandemic, the projections were for that to be up 19% online. It was actually up 38. General merchandise, pre-pandemic forecast 20. It was actually up 29. Uh, and DIY, uh, what pre-pandemic uh, was uh, projected to be up 11 and was up 25%. So we were fixing a lot of stuff and that was validated. Also interesting this past week, Rila and McKinsey issued a report called Re Retail Speaks, seven imperatives from the industry. And um, four of these uh, imperatives were focused on consumers. Number one, become omnipotent. Omnitent and on omni-channel, so consumers will choose retailers based on ease and richness of end-to-end -end experiences. Number two, this time and all the time, it's personal. So again, expect a lot more personal experiences. Number three, turbocharged delivery. So a lot more delivery and e-commerce at the curb. Um, number four, take a stand or take a seat. Consumers are finally voting with their wallets on sustainability and, and a broader purpose for shopping. The other three imperatives were uh, focused on what retailers are doing to invest for growth. Uh, and number five is recalibrate talent strategies. So winning the war for diverse talent, next-gen skills, and embracing a fluid marketplace will give retailers a performance advantage. Number six, pursue an equal uh, friendly strategy. So winner will embrace uh, the network economy to win consumers' mind share and accelerate capabilities. And finally, number seven, take uh, productivity from foundational to transformational. Analytics and automation will enable the step change in productivity needed to fund the other imperatives. So same as the Wall Street Journal, this report, I would encourage you to read it. It has a lot of good data. Uh, especially on personalization and the importance of personalization. So, for example, if you personalize a shopping experience, you'll see a potential uplift in 10 to 15% in revenue and retention, a 10 to 30% more efficient marketing and cost savings, 3 to 5% increased customer acquisition, and 5 to 10% higher satisfaction and engagement. So, lots of good data. Read the report from Rila and McKinsey. Also this week, some really good data on what's happening with global wallets. So we're doing a lot more mobile shopping or mobile using our mobile wallet to pay globally. It will reach $2.4 trillion this year because of the pandemic. It grew a massive 24%. As a point of comparison, it was uh, $755 billion in 2018. The number of people globally choosing mobile wallets to manage their payments 
was 901 million people in 2019. It is projected to grow to 1.5 billion this year and nearly 2 billion by 2025. China, again, is leading this charge. Half of all mobile payments in China will be mobile, uh, uh, mobile wallets uh, by 2023. Uh, for 2021 mobile transactions for this year, they reached already 1.3 trillion. As a comparison, it gives you an idea how far ahead they are. The USA market this year was only for mobile wallets of 465 billion, but uh, the market is expected to go 40, 49% to of nearly 700 billion by 2023. Uh, the third largest uh, mobile wallet or a mobile payment market is actually the UK. So those are the top three in the world. And all this data is from uh, Finadia, Italy. And let me close with, a, with what Reid was mentioning. This week, we have the great pleasure of launching Loss Prevention Research Council Europe. Nearly 50 uh, people have already signed up. Uh, they joined two U.S. retailers, uh, Macy's Joe Cole and Laxatica's Mike Jesse, who will give the uh, U.S. perspective on what they see and how they work with LPRC. Both are board member, advisor members. Uh, so we're looking forward to their input. They joined Reed and myself and a much larger European group uh, to begin the creation of Loss Prevention Research Council Europe. Uh, it's exciting, especially when I saw the list of retail from Europe that have signed up. I'm looking forward to this key next step to uh, help take uh, LPRC into Europe and uh, join that crowd in terms of science-based research loss prevention. All right. Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you, Tom. Um, and I want to thank all of you for dialing in here on the uh, Crime Science Podcast. Uh, remind you again, uh, please, your comments, your suggestions, your questions are, are very welcome here at the LPRC. And you can reach us at operations at lpresearch.org, operations at lpresearch.org, um, and, and tune in. Remember, we've got about a, at least 100 crime science episodes available, a lot of in-depth interviews and dialogue with practitioners, with criminologists, uh, a, a lot of neat content. Recommend you all uh, get involved, engage in that. If you're not a member of LPRC, please, again, reach out to us on, uh, on the website, lpresearch.org. Um, so everybody stay safe. Take care. Thank you, Diego Rodriguez. Thank you, Tony D'Onofrio. Thank you, Tom Meehan. Everybody stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.